Good morning. This is Tommy Ray, and we're in episode 29 of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. We have talked about compacts on the rivers of Colorado. The largest, best known, and earliest is the Colorado River Compact, formed in 1922. Over time, eight more river compacts have been negotiated. Five are fairly small, or touch only a very small portion of Colorado. That leaves three that should be further discussed. Those are the South Platte Compact, 1923, the Rio Grande, 1938, and the Arkansas, 1948. I was not aware of all the dates of these nor the intricacies of each, but I was interested, so I did a little research. With the internet, it is so much easier to research than when I was in college in the Dark Ages. Most of the information in this episode was extracted from Water Education Colorado's third edition of a pamphlet titled Colorado's Interstate Water Compacts. I encourage you to visit their website at watereducationcolorado.org. They are a great source of information for exactly the audience that is listening to this podcast series. Some of the material in this episode are direct quotes from their pamphlet. We know that Colorado straddles the Continental Divide and gives birth to the four rivers just mentioned. Just a tidbit of trivia, 18 states and Mexico share rivers that begin in Colorado. Ever since people moved into Colorado and our neighboring states, they have argued over who gets how much water from rivers originating in our state. In the early days of Colorado, like the 1870s and 1880s, there was a strong sentiment that because the water originates here, we get all the water we need and the states downstream can have what's left. Seemed like a pretty good argument at that time in Colorado's development. I'm sure there were many that thought, since it all comes from the snow in, quote, our mountains, it belongs to us. A little more interesting history to show the confusion and the legal positions that the states were taking regarding water. Remember that the U.S. acquired all the land west of the Mississippi from three actions. First, the 1803 Louisiana Purchase. Second, the 1846 Oregon Treaty between the U.S. and Great Britain. And third, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the Mexican War in 1848. Subsequently, the U.S. passed both the 1862 Homestead Act and the 1866 Mining Act. The Mining Act allowed the territories and states to establish rights to water in the public domain. Congress created the Colorado Territory at the outset of the Civil War in 1861. At that time, Kansas Territory had extended up the Arkansas River to the Continental Divide near Leadville. Similarly, Nebraska Territory had come all the way up the Platte, including both the North Platte into Wyoming and the South Platte, 
to the headwaters southwest of Denver. New Mexico Territory could claim the Rio Grande since its territory had included the San Luis Valley. And finally, the Utah Territory covered the Colorado River drainage. Sounds pretty complicated. And then Colorado Territory, which is essentially a square, really a quadrangle, was plopped down astride the Continental Divide. In this manner, Colorado became the source of waters for all four of these great rivers. Easy to see how Colorado could claim title to all the waters that arose within its boundaries. Under the U.S. Constitution, each state is admitted on the same basis as every other state. Colorado used this equal footing doctrine and cited its 1876 state constitution to claim title to all water arising in its borders. There was the continuing cry of the butt-outs, so Colorado could administer water rights the way they wanted. But decades of drought had hit Colorado and the Southwest in the 1870s and 1890s. Then floods would come. Western irrigators became convinced that they needed federal financial assistance to build storage and flood control projects. About the same time, legal battles among states over water access began with lawsuits filed in the U.S. Supreme Court in the early 1900s. The first salvo was a lawsuit filed by Kansas against Colorado in 1902 in the U.S. Supreme Court. That lawsuit contended that Colorado was illegally consuming Arkansas River water that Kansas owned under its riparian water laws. If Kansas prevailed, Colorado would have had to pass the entire flow of the Arkansas River to Kansas essentially undiminished in quantity or quality. But Colorado fought back. It claimed under its prior appropriation system that it owned all water arising within its borders. Whoa, as they say, trouble in River City. More lawsuits followed. Legal battles were expensive, time-consuming, and proponents could not predict with certainty how the water would be divided by the Supreme Court. Something better was needed. The Western states decided the best way was to enter agreements with other states. The Compact Clause of the U.S. Constitution became the way states could conclude treaty-like agreements to share the most vital of all resources, our water. You remember from Episode 10 that there were boundary disputes between the original 13 colonies. Congress wisely inserted the Compact Clause into the U.S. Constitution. It states in part that, quote, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with any other state, 
End quote. So water disputes and subsequent agreements between the states are referred to as compacts. They require not only agreements between the interested states, but also with the U.S. Congress. Compacts are constitutionally binding agreements once they have been ratified by the legislatures of each compacting state and approved by Congress. These water-sharing charters have fashioned enduring relationships between sister states. And there were early indications that Colorado damn better enter agreements. Several lawsuits were pending in the U.S. Supreme Court, including one against Kansas over use of the Arkansas River, two against Wyoming over the Laramie River, three against New Mexico and Texas over the Rio Grande, and four against California and Arizona over the Colorado River. Early briefs and rulings in the Wyoming case were especially ominous. The Supreme Court seemed headed toward applying prior appropriations across state lines when each of the warring states used this doctrine internally. That doctrine means that the first to actually use the water had first rights to it. If that principle held, a race to develop would be on and California would win. California had more people, more development, and more resources. What a potential nightmare. Finally, the federal government stepped in to help sort things out. In January 1922, Herbert Hoover, then Secretary of Commerce, called the negotiators for California, Arizona, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, and New Mexico to Washington, D.C. for the first meeting of the Colorado River Compact Commission. Luckily, Colorado was represented by Delph Carpenter. He grew up in Greeley and understood water issues. He served in the Colorado Senate and was appointed by the Colorado legislature as Colorado's litigator-slash-negotiator. Before going to Washington, he had represented Colorado versus Wyoming before the Supreme Court. He began negotiating with Nebraska in 1916 that eventually led to the Platte River Compact. He traveled with the Kansas Interstate Commissioner along the Arkansas River and realized that storage facilities on the river could stabilize Colorado's water uses while improving return flows to downstream users. So in 1922, he brought with him the idea to construct two reservoirs on the Colorado River to improve conditions for all impacted states. He had even sketched out where the two dams should go, one above Lee's Ferry and one below. Based on international law theories, Carpenter first insisted in the negotiations that the upper basin states were entitled to use the water originated in them without limitation by the downstream states. However, 
his inevitable concession to the water needs of other states stemmed from his careful study of the U.S. Constitution and the practicality of what was necessary to secure a perpetual allocation of water for Colorado. He found the framework for settling disputes among states in the Compact Clause of the U.S. Constitution with the approval of Congress acting in a spirit of cooperation and equal dignity. When I first started this episode, I thought it would conclude with a description of the Platte River Compact in 1923. But as I did more research, the history of compacts in general and how they came into being seemed more important. Again, I want to acknowledge the work by Water Education Colorado and its pamphlet on Colorado's interstate water compacts. They included a dozen short questions and answers, which I want to read into this episode. They are all informative questions. So we'll start with those questions. What is a compact? Answer, a compact is an agreement between two or more states approved by their state legislatures and Congress under the authority of the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, Subsection 2. Compacts constitute both state and federal law. They are akin to treaties between states with the approval and consent of the federal government. A water compact is a contract between two or more states setting the terms for sharing the waters of an interstate stream. Okay, what is the primary purpose of a water compact? The primary purpose is to establish under state and federal law how the water of an interstate stream system will be shared between users in different states. Okay, what alternative does a state have to determine its interstate water share? A state may file a lawsuit in the U.S. Supreme Court asking for an equitable apportionment of interstate stream waters among the states where the court decides how to fairly divide the water. Congress can also make an equitable apportionment, as it did by the Boulder Canyon Project Act for Arizona, California, and Nevada's share of the Colorado River. Why would states favor negotiating a compact? The states can fashion specific enforceable provisions to share the water of an interstate stream. A compact avoids the risk of repeated Supreme Court lawsuits to determine each state's fair share of the water. Ultimately, it creates certainty for the parties. Going on, what does it mean when a water compact allocation between states refers to beneficial consumptive use? Beneficial consumptive use is the amount of water typically expressed in acre-feet or by percentage that each state is entitled to use up entirely within its boundaries from the natural supply available in the river system. Okay, next, who can enforce a water compact? 
A state can file suit in the Supreme Court for enforcement of its rights under the compact. A state may seek an injunction to require a non-complying state to abide by the provisions of the compact and to provide repayment of water lost to the state and or monetary compensations. Some compacts establish a commission that has administrative authority. Next, what is the effect of a compact on water right owners within a state? The state has a duty to regulate water rights within its own state to avoid breaching the rights of another state. Okay. Has the state of Colorado ever had to pay another state for breach of compact? Colorado, as a result of the U.S. Supreme Court's 1995 decision, paid Kansas about $34.7 million for breach of the Arkansas River Compact. All right. Can a state withdraw from or amend a compact? Compacts typically prohibit unilateral withdrawal by a state and require unanimous consent of all signatory states as well as congressional consent for any amendment. What role do federal reservoirs play in compact operation? Reservoirs constructed, owned, and managed by agencies of the U.S. government are often the most important means for administering the provisions of a compact to achieve its purposes and meet its terms. Next, do Native American tribal and federal agency reserved water rights have an equitable apportionment or compact water share? The U.S. Supreme Court held in its 1963 Arizona versus California decision that its equitable apportionment jurisdiction applies only to suits between states and not to Native American tribes. The court held that the reserve rights of the Colorado River tribes are charged against the compact allocations of the states where those reservations exist. Typically, interstate water compacts contain a provision disclaiming any intent to affect tribal water rights. And the last question, how do federal environmental laws come into play? The Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, the National Forest Management Act, and other federal land and environmental laws can impact the construction and operation of federal and non-federal reservoirs, as well as direct flow diversions that use a portion of a state's compact apportioned water. Okay, lots of good questions and answers. I hope you have found this as interesting and as informative as I did. We continue on to alert you to the many facets of water in Colorado. I have scheduled an interview to discuss the impact that forest fires have on our drinking water supplies. We will either discuss forest fires next time or explain more on the compacts on the Platte, the Arkansas, and a little more on the Rio Grande. 
They are all interesting. Let's stop for now, have a cold glass of Rocky Mountain pure water, and go sit by our favorite stream. See you next time.